Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Elizabeth Stamen. I'm a governor of the LSE and a member of the LSE Audit Committee. I've worked in financial services for many years, first for Morgan Stanley after graduating from the LSE, and most recently as Global Chief Operating Officer of LaSalle Investment Management. I'm now a member of the supervisory board of TLG Immobilien, a listed German real estate company, and I'm a senior advisor to Corno, a peer-to-peer -peer lending business with a focus on Germany. I'm very pleased to welcome Catherine Marcel to the LSE today. Catherine is the lead editor for the Swedish newspaper Aftonbladet and the author of Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? In this lecture, Catherine will speak about her book in which she charts the myth of economic man from its origins at Adam Smith's dinner table to its adaptation by the Chicago School and finally its disastrous role in the 2008 global financial crisis. And she looks forward to a new, more inclusive type of economics. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashLSEMarcel. I would ask you to please put your phones on silent to avoid disrupting the event. This evening's lecture is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast. After the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to Catherine. There will also be book signing following the event. Cop copies of Catherine's book will be on sale outside of the venue. Will you please join me in welcoming Catherine to the LSE to deliver her lecture entitled Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner? Women and Economics. It worked. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. I am very, very um, happy to be here. It's a great honor. And um, this book just literally came out a couple of days ago here in the UK. And um, you know, I'm just very, very happy to be here and talk about these issues that I think are very important. So um, who am I? Uh, that's me on a fancy author photo when they have the, the wind machine that makes your hair blow so you look very glamorous. Um, and that's my book, um, Who Cooked Adam Smith's um, Dinner. So I, I'm a columnist for, I'm Swedish, I, I'm based in London since almost three years. Um, and I write a, a weekly column on politics and economics for a Scandinavian newspaper called Aftonbladet. So... Um, one and a half years ago, I was in Stockholm to interview the, um, the three uh, winners of the uh, 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics. And I don't know if you remember, but it was three different winners, and they all disagreed with each other and had typical economists. They had very different theories proving different things, and the whole thing was, was rather messy. But, uh, so we had to interview them one by one. And I was waiting down there for Professor Eugene Farmer, and uh, all set up, I prepared for weeks. Um, he comes down, he takes one look at me, and he says, so who wrote your questions? <laughs> because, um, because of course, the, to him, 
of course. But to him, the idea that you know, a woman in her 30s like me uh, would actually be capable of understanding his research and uh, formulating interesting questions was, I think, unthinkable. Um, and there are many stories like this um, in economics. Um, there are also studies you know, showing showing how you know, women within economics will be published in as many journals as men and, and as prestigious journals and they will not get ahead in their careers uh, as much as they're uh, as fast as their male colleagues and less so than in comparable subjects like science and, and so on. So there is, there is something going on in, in economics and also if you look at the, the more general economic debate in society um, you know, if you open the Financial Times to their comment section, most days four out of four articles will be written by men. And that is, um, in many ways, how it is. Um, sexism in economics exists. However, that's not what I'm going to talk about uh, today. Uh, I'm going to put the question which I ask um, in my book as well, which is, what about, what about if the problem goes deeper? What about if this thing, women and economics, what if it goes almost to the core of economic theory? So bear with me. Um, we have to go back to the beginning, which um, in e economics is, um, well, you could say, um, 1776 when Adam Smith wrote um, The Wealth of Nations, and he asked the founding question of economics in that book, which is, how do you get your dinner? Um, and so what the great Adam Smith uh, means with that is that um, we assume we go to the shop and there's bread there, um, there's meat and we can just buy it and take it home but actually for that bread to be there uh, there's lots of you know, complicated economic processes that has to take place at the right time, at the right place for it all to work um, so it really is something extraordinary and it's even more extraordinary today when the global economy is so much more complicated. Um, so um, how, how do you get uh, your dinner? And his, his answer to this question is um, the very famous, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. So... It's self-interest is this force that keeps it all together. It's like the equivalent of gravity in Newtonian physics, right? When in the market economy, it's, it's self-interest. Um, and since then, you know, many people have even defined economics as the study of, study of self-interest. And it's, this is standard economic theory. There's lots of variations, but uh, now we're going to talk about the, you know, the caricature or sort of, or the, the foundation. Um, I would argue, but if we take his question seriously, how do you get um, your dinner? And I think we should take it seriously. Then we have to look at Adam Smith's life. And the truth is, the, the founding father of economics never married, and he lived his whole life with his mother, um, and. So, who actually cooked the dinner? And the answer, probably, I don't know if she cooked it, but she definitely had something to do with how it got on the table. This is Adam Smith's mother, um, Margaret Douglas, who looked after her son um, her, whole, her whole life, and whenever the household moved, she moved with them. And as Adam Smith's 
um, biographer um, puts it, his mother herself was from first to last the heart of Smith's life. So that's, that's beautiful. Um, however, did she look after Adam Smith? Did she do all the things she did out of self-interest? Maybe. Uh, partly. There were not that many opportunities open for, for women, uh, w widows, uh, during this time. However, it was probably just not out of self-interest. She probably loved her son. She, maybe she was worried about him. Uh, he's writing all these books he has to eat, or something like that. Or uh, it could be any kind of you know, more complex, complicated human emotion that makes people do, um, do what they do. So the problem is that none of these emotions or the work that, that she did is much sort of accounted for in, in economic theory. Uh, so the market economy is it, not just about the invisible hand, but also about the invisible heart. This is terminology from economics professor Nancy Folber, uh, who some of you might have heard of. So the invisible hand, which I think Adam Smith actually only mentions once in The Wealth of Nations, but this is sort of the interpretation or what sort of many economists after him has made of his work, is, is um, self-interest, rationality, individualism, freedom, and that is definitely one part of the economy. But then there's also care, relationships, family, love, you know, all the things we do for other reasons, and those things also matter um, for the economy. Um, and um, the problem, of course, with, with this, within economic theory, is that economics spends a lot of time looking at the invisible hand and a lot of less time looking at the invisible heart. And the other problem is that because of how society has been structured culturally for hundreds of years, it's sort of mainly this work, the work of the invisible hand, the work that we do out of self-interest, mainly, uh, for money, is, has been the work of men. Um, and the work that we do for other reasons that economics is not as interested in, not for money, that we do in the home, but is, that is also, and probably equally as important for a society, has been done by women. And even though economics comes from the, uh, the Greek root of the word, actually means home or household, so it was the study of the home, but what actually goes on within the home is not something that uh, economics has been that interested in looking at. And this, of course, creates this value system where this is what counts and not this. Um, and this creates... Problems, of course, if we, if you just, just this is just a woman, normal woman in, in Ghana. Um, the paid work she does is, is this is a time study, is sort of 39%, and then the rest of the time she spends washing clothes, cleaning, fetching water, running errands, washing dishes, etc. All of these things are, of course, really important to the economy and to society, but they are not counted. They are not part of. GDP measurements, um, and, it's, and we're not that interested in studying it. Of course, this, this, we do it as well, but not, not as much. Um, and it's the same. This is in the West, the OECD. This is men and women, different tasks. Cooking and food cleanup, cleaning, gardening, volunteering, total childcare, 
child care, physical child care. I'm not sure what that is. Um, maybe it's sort of the physical act of wrestling your child in the hallway to get them to <laughs> put on clothes. But women do that as well, more than men. Um, construction and repair is unsurprisingly the only thing that, that men do more than women. This is the minutes per day devoted to the activity, OECD average. So unpaid work, women do it more um, than, uh, than men. So why does this matter to things, you know, other things that we might care about? Um, this is the gender pay gap in the UK. Um, you see highly paid women, the difference between men's and women's hourly earnings as a percentage of men's earnings. For highly paid women is around 20%, going down lately. I'm actually not sure why. Probably financial crisis. Um, and for low paid, difference between low paid women and low paid men's um, wages is sort of between 10 and, 10 and 6 in the last uh, 10 years. Um, this is, we talk about this all the time. However, the perspective of the, of the invisible heart or the fact that care is devalued in our economy um, is, is important to sort of understand this picture because um, so when does the real, the big gender pay gap happen for, for high, highly paid women is the moment you have a child, right? Um, especially in the, in the UK, more than in, for example, Scandinavia. But, but that's when it happens. As soon as your sort of caring responsibilities kicks in, as we saw, women do more of that than men, uh, that's when the gender pay gap happens. For, for low-earning women, um, a, a big reason why low-earning women earn less than low-earning men um, is because they work in the care sector, which in most Western, economy, or most Western economies is very low low pay sector. So this sort, of, this sort of value system between the invisible hand being much more important than the invisible heart, it sort of, it, it comes in here and, it's, uh, and it matters. Uh, just because I'm Swedish, I have to show you this because people always ask about this. Um, there's this idea about Sweden as this, you know, uh, feminist utopia and many things are very good in Sweden but as you can see for example when it comes to the gender pay gap Sweden is here just in the middle uh, actually the gender pay gap is not that much smaller in Sweden than in the UK um, then of course Sweden has a higher percentage of women um, on the labour market um, so this is not the whole picture but it's, it's uh, and some of these things I think are surprising like you know Poland is doing very well when it comes to the gender pay gap, for example. I don't think that's something that everyone would, uh, would um, expect. But um, I think the case of Sweden is interesting because it's, uh, Sweden invests a lot of money in helping people combine family and career. I think it's um, 4% of GDP something, approximately the cost of you know, universal childcare and parental leave. So 4% of GDP is approximately what... U.S. spends on its military, so it's a lot of money, um, and it is easier to combine um, work and, and family in Sweden. However, that doesn't seem to translate into feminist utopia. And other, you know, other figures are much worse. For example, if, um, women in senior management in Sweden, uh, Sweden is uh, not doing well at all when it comes to those things. And that's another measurement where Eastern Europe is actually leading. So, um, anyway. Um, so, of course, there are ways of measuring unpaid work. Um, I know the Office of National Statistics is 
working on something this year. It's, um, um, we include other things into GDP, prostitution and gambling, for example. Um, this is just one estimate. It's just, I mean, these things. Um, uh, this is the value of unpaid childcare from the satellite accounts in 2010. Um, so this is the hours, again, time studies that... Um, people in the UK spend on unpaid childcare, calculated, you know, what would this cost pay a nanny to look after children, and that's the value to the UK economy. So it's one measurement. But as you can see, it's three times as much as the value of financial services. So it's, it's just to illustrate how big this sector is and that it is, it is something that is very important to look at and to understand, not just if you want to improve the role of, you know, improve the position of women in the economy, but also if you actually want to understand the economy or the market or what the market is built on. Um, so does this matter? Well, so um, my book is, um, is a... It's not an academic book, um, as you might have understood already. Um, it's, um, it's a mainstream book about economics for, for normal people, as my publisher likes to put it. Um, because economics, I believe, matters far outside of the LSE and far out of, outside of you know, people who read the Financial Times. The economics is, is a... You know, maybe one could say it's one of these sort of big religions of our time. Uh, religions in the sense that it is a story that, um, that explains to us who we are and why we do what we do and sort of how that sort of fits into the whole. And, um, and it's something, it's, it's a language also that's taken very, very seriously in the, in, the, um, in the political debate, in the public debate. As soon as someone starts speaking economics, um, it sort of tends to silence um, other people. Um, and, um, and, it, and it matters. So what this, sort of, what, what this story says about women and men uh, will matter far outside of, of economics. At least that's what I argue um, in the book. And we can just look at, you know, in any, any bookshops, at, um, books that sell a lot more than my book, um, free, free economics, super free economics, discover your inner economist, spousonomics, which I've actually read, and my, my favourite, find a husband after 35 using what I learned at Harvard Business School, which I don't need. Uh, um, but um, I read that one as well, actually. Um, <laughs> um, research for the book. Um, yes, no, I mean, these books, like Freakonomics, sold 5 million copies, and... Um, and it has the assumption that these sort of... The, the standard economic theory, this sort of quite, you know simplistic theory um, of, of you know, standard economics can explain almost everything in the world, and they apply it in a very amusing way to lots of different areas. Um, spousonomics applies it to your marriage, sort of how to become a better spouse uh, using the principles of the market economy. Um, and <laughs> but this, this, this says something. Um, and in 1979, um, the French philosopher Michel Foucault gave a series of, of lectures on, um, on um, ordo liberalism um, in, in France. And in one of those lectures, he talks about, he talks about uh, the Chicago School of Economics and uh, Gary Becker, who's uh, young at that time. And he uh, discusses this idea that Becker has had that you know, economic theory can be applied and to everything, that it can explain almost every human interaction. And he discusses this in his sort of 
Foucaultian way. But then he says, well, this is too radical. This will never, <laughs> this will never catch on. Nobody, not even the sort of new right you know, that's emerging at the time, this is 1979, um, will, can take this seriously. More or less of what he says. And then in 91, or was it 92, Gary Becker gets the Nobel Prize in economics. And then in 2005, we get Freakonomics. And then we get Super Freakonomics. And then we get all of this. Um, so something that was you know, considered so, that kind of economic imperialism that was considered you know, so out of the blue that not even Thatcher would, um, um, would think like that um, is now you know, what people who have not studied at the LSE, when they go to the local bookshop and they want a book about economics, this is what they get. Um, so if economics is a story, who is the... Um, the main character. Well, the main character of economics is economic man, um, and he's, um, he's sort of the embodiment of this sort of idea that humans act out of self-interest. I think you all know him. He's rational. He maximizes utility in every situation. He's an individual. He is independent. He doesn't need anyone else. He doesn't, you know, he might have relationships, but they don't really sort of... Um, change him or, or, or anything and, and we, we know and we've been we've known for 40 years that he doesn't exist um, you know from Kahneman and Tversky to you know every time or almost every time you study this and there's tons of books you know out there saying he doesn't exist and since the financial crisis we talk about this this even more um, I mean, in studies, the, the people, the only people, almost the only people that tend to act a little bit like economic man in actual psychological experiments are children under five. And, and they say, um, um, and they say uh, we have a five-year-old. Um, no, she, she, um, no, she <laughs> children under five, it's mainly because they can't really grasp how, what other people are thinking, so they can't really take that into account in the same way that sort of we who are older have learned to do. Um, so we know that you know, economic man is not real. Um, you know, I was not interested in writing yet another book about saying this is, you know, this is a fantasy. What I was interested in was like, okay, we've known for 40 years that this is, you know, human beings don't act like this. Why do we still stick to this? Why do we, why do we still teach this? Why is this still the, you know, the first thing uh, they teach you at economics? Why is this you know, the, the model that you know, these kind of books sort of sell as, as economics. And well the answer in my book is a lot about that, you know, it's a very, very seductive idea and a very seductive character. Uh, <laughs> so I did a little bit of Photoshop. Uh, um, um, so this is this is from Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and the main character of that book is Christian Grey. Um, so Economic man, rational, dominant, selfish, powerful, emotionally unavailable, independent, competitive, knows what he wants, has an unlimited appetite, and you can't change him. So basically what I'm arguing is that, we're, you know, anyone feel that they're in an abusive relationship with this guy? Um, <laughs> but, I mean, he has got a lot in common with this. And, you know, my more serious point, um, the book is a little bit more serious than this, actually, um, my most serious point is about that, you know, it is a, it is a seductive, you know, idea about masculinity because all of, you know, 
It can't be a coincidence that all of the characteristics of economic man are the same characteristics that we have been taught through hundreds of years of patriarchy to view as masculine. And it can't be a coincidence that everything that sort of economic theory goes to great lengths trying to exclude from, you know, from what's considered economically relevant, etc., is the exactly the same things that we have been taught through hundreds of years of patriarchy to view as female. Uh, you know, emotion, the body, um, dependency, etc., etc. Um, and in a world where sort of women earn so much um, less than men, and this is the dominating economic theory, there has to be a story here. And that was the starting point um, for my for my book. So if you look at the um, the world of this economic man, so his relationships are relationships of competition. Nature in this story is like a hostile thing that you dominate. The calculator, you calculate your sort of utility in every situation. And resources are, of course, scarce. Um, and you grab all you can. Um, this is, you know, a caricature, but more or less, this, this is the world. Um, so what can women be in this world of standard economic theory? So there's three options, as I see it. One is you can be natural resource. Um, which basically, you're, you're Adam Smith's mother. Uh, you know, you do this, <laughs> you do this work uh, um, that you know, standard economic theory, you know, says has always been there. It's always been performed by women, and it will always be continued to be performed by women. So we don't really have to think about it. Um, basically, a natural resource that we can just like women's care, or we can just like take from it and take and take and take, and we don't need to measure it. Um, or you can be a product or a thing, right? So it's sort of women as, you know, trophies, status symbols, you know, um, there's plenty of sort of economic papers that look at sort of these sort of things, especially in the area that, you know, tries to look at relationships. And uh, it often sees, um, sees women, women as, as this. Um, or the third option is you can be economic man. Um, And so what does that mean? So that means that, you know, you can... And this is, you know, what has happened in the last 50 years. So we've, we've, we've told women, you know, please come out on the labour market, please work, please, you know, do, do, you know, get all the rights that men have, and please, you know, you are free to compete um, in this market economy in just the way as men do. Um, but the problem with this system is, of course, that this, you know, economic man still dominates. It's a labour market, you know, based, the labour market is based on the, you know, the idea that, you know, this detached person can just go out there, compete, and, um, and his home life will just, like, magically sort itself out, right? Um, and then, but, but when you tell women to sort of go out and be economic man as well, who's going to... Who's going to sort of be Adam Smith's mother at home? Um, and it's, a, it's an equation that doesn't sort of, it doesn't work. And it's also the, um, also the, you know, the whole, like, you just have to go to the city of London to see the sort of, you know, the idea that you have to be like economic man. You know, that's, that's how you run a business. That's how you, um, my favorite quote about this is actually from the publishing industry. is the American publisher, Judith Reagan, who said, um, I have the biggest cock in this building, which is, you know, her trying to say that she was, she was the best, um, um, yeah, the best manager they had. So, I mean, it's really sort of a masculine ideal that you have to sort of, um, have to embody as a woman. Um, 
Um, and this is, you know, these are basically, again, I'm exaggerating for the sake of the argument, but I mean, these are the three, three things that women can be within this economic universe that we have created. Um, and this is the problem. You can't just add women and stir. And in many ways, this is what we have done. Um, to, <laughs> that's Samuelson, his reading. Um, um, we have, we have taken these theories that are based on economic man, who, you know, um, which in turn is based on this sort of other invisible woman doing all the care work at home um, and all the sort of dichotomies and all the, the things that that, that um, um, implies, and then we just sort of added women to it. And the first people who added, uh, or in this sense, added women to, to economic theory and sort of took women's work and work in the home seriously was, you know, actually the Chicago School, um, who um, started to look at Gary Becker and company and, 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 um, and his um, friends up there who started looking at, um, you know, the home um, and the household, you know, domestic work, etc. Um, and... Um, but the problem was the way they did this. They did this sort of without changing the fundamental assumptions of standard economic theory uh, and or economic man. So this is me. You know, just for example, um, why women earn less. So this, this is a couple of theories. Uh, of course, if, if people are always rational, acting out of self-interest, so, and the market is perfect, then if something exists on the market, for example, the fact that women earn less than men, then that must be a rational thing. Um, and the role of, of uh, a good economist, then, is to just find, simply find out why it's rational. Um, and the first, the first theory, um, women earn less than men because they invest less in their careers because they will become mothers. So it's not rational for women to, you know, work as hard in school, you know, go for that promotion, etc., because we will take time out and we will look after the children. Therefore, we are also, you know, we are less productive at work. We are not as good uh, when we're in the office as our male colleagues, and therefore it's just rational to pay us less, right? So this is, uh, this is theory number one, which if you actually sort of look at it out in the real world, uh, you, you can find lots of examples of women who are just as qualified or has, have invested uh, just as much in their careers and still do don't get ahead in the same way um, as men. Second example theory, um, also Chicago School, sexist clients have a preference for not working with women, therefore not rational to pay a woman as much as a man. So for example, if you run a law firm, you might have clients who they don't want a female lawyer. Um, so um, therefore it's not rational to pay your female lawyers as much as your male lawyers, because some clients will refuse to work with them. Um, so it, it, it's all rational, but I mean, um, um, Gary Becker also says that this type of, of um, discrimination will work itself out because it is unfair, and people will realise that hey, I can get the cheaper female lawyer, and and they will you know try to make a business out of that, and the market will just sort of it will all uh, magically uh, work out. Third of my favorite theories is um, <laughs> um, women are less productive at work because they do more housework. And this is, is from the assumption that, um, that uh, you know, when a woman comes home, um, they write, um, they, what does she do? She, you know, starts cleaning and looking after the children and wiping stuff and whatnot. And uh, what, does, what does a man do? Well, he just, when he comes home from work, he just, like, 
reads the paper or goes to the pub or something. Um, says Gary Beckett, not me. Um, and, um, uh, and of course, the next day, this woman who has been cleaning all night after work, she will be more tired than the man who's just been reading the newspaper, so she will be less productive. And therefore, it's only rational that she earns less money. Um, and... Um, and the best part of this is that the several economists often simultaneously say that women also do more housework because they earn less. So they earn, we earn less because we do more housework, and we, it, just, it just doesn't... My, my point here is just basically that, you know, you can't just add women and stir. These sort of theories... Um, it's not what does this theory say about women as much as what can be said about women within this theory. And, and I think that's, from that starting point, we have to look at, look at, um, at economics. So, why do this matter? Um, I mean, it's not just you know, the fact that you know, free economics and this, these sort of stories... Um, matter a lot to, you know, in the sense that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a value system and it's a, it's a way that we sort of, we make sense to the world in, in many ways through these sort of economic stories, but, but also, you know, for policy, because many of the most, or I will argue, many of the most sort of pressing, pressing, most toxic political and policy problems uh, we have today are sort of connected to, to, to these things, you know, the so the most obvious one, of course, is childcare, most expensive childcare in Europe and, and um, here in the United Kingdom. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a big reason why sort of people, people's lives, life don't work. It's, uh, it's, um, um, it's a big political issue, and you can't sort of discuss it or solve it without, you know, I would argue, this, this perspective. Um, next, you know, benefits... Um, very, very toxic, toxic issue. Um, but you know, if you just look at it rationally, um, if you know, women, if the minimum wage uh, hardly, you know, at all covers the cost of childcare, it's very hard to sort of expect women to sort of to find a job. Um, and um, and you know, on one hand, you have the um, the right that is very happy to sort of talk about women, you know, people on benefits, uh, but they don't want to invest in universal childcare. So it's hard to see how, how that will work out. And on the other hand, you have the left, who is which is often not com- comfortable to speak about, you know, dependency on benefits at all, for example. But sort of this perspective about care, about you know, that this is part of a you know, like childcare, these things is part of a massive economic shift that's been going on for the last, you know, 40, 50 years, that all this work that has been done sort of in the home has moved out into the market, and, um, and women, having you know, half the population has sort of moved, moved out, and uh, of course it creates another society and tensions, and today we sort of, we often sort of tend to want women to sort of solve these, you know, the, the fact, you know, these tensions by, you know, planning better or doing more yoga or uh, all these sort of things, but actually it's an, it's an economic question, and we need sort of, you know, we need economics here. I'm a, I'm a big believer in um, economics and you know evidence-based policy making and, and all these sort of things and 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 these these perspectives you know feminist economics we need it here um, you know we're talking about in the development um, countries where you know in the in the third world where you know these sort of un, um, informal sector is is a massive part of the economy and if we don't measure it then and we don't take it into account when we talk about this we we don't really get an accurate picture about you know what makes a society develop or what makes these economies develop um, 
it's uh, migration um, is in many ways a women's issue. I mean, many of uh, the women that come here, they come to work as you know, domestic help in, in, in the home for you know, uh, women who are out on the market trying to be economic man. And often the, the working conditions are in many cases is, are very bad, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But this is also, you know, many of the, sort of the global care chains, you talk about how sort of women migrate from one part of the world to the next in these sort of chains to sort of work uh, for other women. It's, you know, it's... Um, it's something rather new, and it's, it's massive. It's a massive part of the global economy. Just the amount of money that these women send back to where they're from is, you know, keeps, <laughs> keeps you know, the Philippines going. It's, you know, this is, you know, this is real sort of global economics. Um, poverty, you know, we know that, you know, most people in the world who are poor are women. Uh, we also know that if you invest in these women, you know, growth will take off and all of these sort of things. Um, Pensions, 17% of unemployed British women um, quit their jobs to care for someone else. 17%. Um, so that could be an, an older parent, it could be your daughter's children, uh, because the ch cost of childcare is so high, but it's sort of, it's 17, 17%. And these women who do the care work, you know, in our pension system and, you know, and welfare states are not set up to, to compensate these women. Um, and we don't think about these issues, in, I, I, think, I think, enough. Um, so a very, very important part of it as well. Austerity, discussed a lot here, um, which again has to do with, with care work and just, I mean, you can say what you want about austerity and cuts, but I think the role of economics is to sort of give politicians a or the, you know, the people in power, um, you know, a, a, an, accurate, an, an as accurate picture as possible about, you know, what kind of, if you'd make this cut, this will happen, etc. And this perspective about care and women in economics, um, in Sweden, for example, we had a, a very big and tough budget consolidation in the, in the mid-90s, um, which was, you know, probably very necessary, etc. But, but what also happens when you, when you cut, you cut, for example, public services. Um, the problem is, of course, that in many of these, in big parts of this sector, you know, the, the amount of old people that need care or the amount of children that need care will still be the same, and you have less hands, you know, trying to sort of administer that, that care. Um, and what happened in Sweden uh, 10 years or so on after these budget, you know, successful budget consolidation was that suddenly you had very, very large numbers of uh, women on sick leave in the public sector, you know, overworked, um, etc. And their bodies just couldn't hold up. And, um, and that became a large cost, of course, on the state that came later, uh, which many people now argue had to do with the austerity. So you, you cut then, but the cost sort of was shifted over to women's bodies in the care sector and then showed up later. Um, so the, all of these things are very interesting and important um, to look at if you want to sort of understand how, you know, an economy works. Finance, I mean, I think that's just the most obvious case. Um, economic man has ruled there, and, um, and that has been a problem. You know, all these, you know, ideas, I mean, this has been talked about a lot, the efficient market hypothesis and, and ev everything that sort of comes from this, this sort of masculine fantasy of, of, of economic man is a problem, you know. With finance, it's not as, you know, as simple as Christine Lagarde famously put it, that if Lehman Brothers had been Lehman sisters, you know. I'm not a believer in that, but... But, but I think, you know, it's, um, I mean, this is not about sort of, 
I think sort of the question about women and economics is, it goes a lot deeper than sort of who's on the board of a bank. I mean, that is important as well, but, but it is deeper and it's about the whole value system. And again, men are not naturally like economic man either. They're just sort of expected to be like him if they work in, the, in finance and uh, it's not very good. Um, and I think it's difficult to talk about, now people are talking about, you know, virtuous banking or we have to change the, uh, you know, banking. But, and that also, that's all good, but I think then you have to look at economic man and you have to look at why we're so seduced by him and then you have to look at his masculinity and, and then you come back to this. So, again, future of the welfare state, this is things like, you know, what's the big problem in... In, not in Britain, but in, in um, parts of Europe, for example, Germany, is that um, women don't have the amount of children that they want. Uh, big problem for the German economy, big problem for Japan. Um, and in many cases, this has to do with sort of, it's difficult to combine uh, work and career. Um, and so, so you don't have as many children as you want, which ends up as a big problem um, for, for a state. And to solve it, this is, you know, it's childcare, it's these sort of things. Um, and of course, you know, this perspective gives us a better understanding of markets and of economic behavior. And um, I, um, you know, I'm not, you know, this is. I'm a big believer in economics. I, I like, you know, I think you know, it's important to measure things. I think it's important to um, to try to to understand uh, what's going on, uh, because if you're if you're just happy with the way the world works and and the world, way the economy works and the outcomes of the economy, and if you think it's all fair and and brilliant, then I think you can afford to just. You know, spend your time with economic man and just creating these beautiful mathematical models based on a fictitious character um, because you, know, you don't want to change things anyways but, but if, you, if you want to change things then you actually have to try to understand how markets work and how the economy works and then you can't afford to sort of just uh, spend your time on that, we have to sort of get more, get more real and it matters what's you know, and I know there are, you know, there are lots of sort of um, there's a lot going on within economics right now, with you know, behavioural economics and all these sort of other perspectives coming, and that's very, very exciting. And I'm, I'm just you know, adding, adding this one, um, and have written a book trying to summarise uh, summarise this perspective because I think it's, it's I think it's important. Um, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties if I can write its economics textbooks. That's Paul Samuelson who wrote the most influential economic textbook. Um, so he was very successful in this. But uh, it does matter um, because, because as I was talking about before, economics is taking so seriously um, um, today. And here I had... Oh, there. Um, and so... I'm just going to end by, by reading a quote. I, so the most, um, one of the most famous definitions of economics is from Lionel Robbins in 1932, where he says that economics is a science which studies human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce means which have alternative uses. And I just want to quote Judith Nelson, who's a feminist economist, who just asked the questions in one of her books, like, 
how different would the world be if we had a different definition? And she, she, has, she has this definition. Economics is the science which studies how humans satisfy their requirements and enjoy the delights of life using the free gifts of nature. So that's a, that's a very, very different you know, way of telling the story. Um, and it doesn't have to sort of turn into, you know... Let's go hug trees and vote for the Green Party. It's, uh, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm a Swedish social democrat, and I'm, you know, I like growth and I like productivity and all these sort of things. And and I, I and I believe that you can be a conservative, you know, feminist economist as well. I suppose then you would sort of take these things and you would say, oh, we have to sort of value, you know, stay-at-home mothers, etc. You know, and that would be, you know, a, you know, f- fair debate um, to have. I don't think this is, ne- you know, definitely, you know, like a necessarily a lefty thing or, or, uh, or something but I just think that, I just believe that you know, economics should be about how to translate a, 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 a social vision into a working economic system and I think, um, I think that's what we, what we um, should be doing and um, thank you, thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for your lecture, Catherine. We'll now open the floor to questions from the audience. If you can let us know your name, your affiliation, and wait for the stewards with the roving microphones to get to you. Okay, there's one up there. And what we'll do, we'll take a couple at a time. So there's the man with the glasses. There's one right at the back. And the lady here on the right, Karina. Okay, um, start with her. Uh, I am a member of public, one of those normal people. Um, uh, don't you think that the, the deeper problem is that the economics wants to pre- pretend to be a positive science that you know, is not concerned about giving value judgment about what is out there? So if patriarchy is out there, it take it as a given and may be natural. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then there's one a gentleman right at the back. Hello, um, my name is Nuno. I'm, my affiliation is LSE. So what I have is more of a comment that I'd like to, to react to, which is that I think you're really mischaracterizing the Chicago School in, and Gary Becker, because if there were advances that were made into the directions of everything you are defending, okay, Gary Becker's PhD thesis in 1955 was the economics of discrimination. He was talking about this blacks and whites. Actually, this is a Just getting a new microphone up there. Technology. So, <laughs> so in, a concept, in a conceptual sense, talking about discriminations of black and white from a conceptual sense is the same as talking about discriminations of, of, of women. And if there was major advances to make there, they were made by, by Gary Becker in that sense. So it, it's really unfair the way you're characterizing the Chicago School. And I suggest it's a bit ideological on your point, since you don't like the general outcome of the Chicago School. I don't like either, by the way. But you're really mischaracterizing that work. OK. Here at the front. Um... One, two, one, two. <coughs> 
And then we'll take, um, after Catherine has um, answered those questions, we'll, we'll have plenty of opportunity to ask more questions, so just hold them. Okay, Karina. Karina Robinson, Robinson Hambro. Um, I think you're absolutely right about economic man, who you know, has been disproved. But what I'd like to know is, in your book, what do you put in his place? Because we all need a myth to hold on oh, to. Do okay. Um, so, number one, if economics pretends to be a positive science, well, without sort of going, you know, that's a bit of a different debate. But um, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, it's part. I think part of my message is, you know. It's a little bit sort of be, a, be, be more humble, you know, look more at, you know, be more interested in studying real markets and real people than sort of theory. So definitely um, part of that. Um, and, and I think, it's, you know, it's an interesting discussion and it, you know, it ties into, into these things. So, yes, I agree with you. With the Chicago School, I don't really understand what you mean because, or I do, but I think I just said that. Um, um, I mean, I, I said that they were the first ones who sort of who looked at these issues and, and then I criticised it because I, I thought that they looked at these issues uh, in a way that, you know, I don't agree with and I don't think is right. And I tried to explain that. Um, and I made a little bit of fun... Uh, <laughs> Of Gary Becker, and you know, I'm sorry about that, but um, um, and uh, but I, I think I think I actually said, you know, your point that yes, they were the first ones to look at this, and well, that's good. Um, and uh, the last question, the alternative, which is, you know, that's a difficult question. Um, and um, again, this is not an academic book; it's you know, it's a mainstream book. I'm trying to, you know, sort of tell the story and um, and point to the masculinity of the story. Um, and I'm not sort of, oh, let's have economic woman instead. Um, I, think, I think part of the problem is this, um, this, um, you know, this very seductive story. Do we really need sort of economics to be the seductive story in society? Maybe, you know, the, the religion of our time could come from something else and maybe sort of economists could be like, like dentists, like, like Keynes said. Um, I, think, I think, I mean, I, I understand your point. I mean, many people who I've talked um, about this book with have said exactly that and have sort of criticised me for that. They say, well, we do need, you know, a comparable story that's just as charismatic because otherwise we can't change it. And I don't think I believe that. That. Or, I mean, I think we do believe those stories, but I actually don't want them coming from economics. I want them to come from, from other parts of society. Um, so, so, yes. Okay. There's a lady there in the middle. Hi, thank you. I found your lecture absolutely fascinating. Um, with the stories... Could you just the... um, say your name and your... Sorry, uh, uh, my name is Fran and I'm a member of the civil service. Um, there were some stories in the papers over the weekend about um, how, which said that the government wants to introduce uh, mandatory uh, reporting by companies of a certain size of their gender pay gap in the future. Um, if the, one of the key challenges for the government, if that's to try and equalise labour market participation and close the gender pay gap, then um, what do you reckon, how do we apply this sort of new perspective and is that goal, is that sort of government challenge the right goal and how useful is the gender pay gap as a calculation in terms of determining how successful we are? Because I'm just conscious that when we compare ourselves to other countries that some of those countries might look like they have a good gender pay gap but they might not have many women in employment, etc. So it would be interesting in your thoughts. Thank you. Somebody there at the back, the lady in black top. Um, hello? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, my name's Sarah, and I'm um, a student. Uh, apart from your own book, are there any other books that maybe aren't on uh, economics uh, syllabuses that you regard as uh, key for similar uh, ideas? Okay. And then here there was a gentleman here at the front. Hi, uh, my name is Baldeep Damas. My affiliation is UCL. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with a, a lot of what you're saying. Just um, as a point of reference, I've just come off um, uh, an intensive MBA teaching week. One of the modules was corporate finance, and the efficient market hypothesis did come up. And I, try, I critiqued it as best as I could with behavioral economics, but I was kind of almost brushed aside with... Um, the reply was a lot more to do with sort of high-frequency trading and how efficient the market is with regards to how quickly share prices fluctuate. I just wanted to know what your critique would be, I mean, maybe from a behavioral economics point of view of individual traders, you know, again, looking at the market rather than this economic man, looking at the individuals that are trading and saying uh, men and women may trade differently, or even just from a human point of view, people would have different um, opinions on how um, a merger of British Airways would be. So, so just um, sort of a reply, a reply to that, please. Thank you. And we'll, we'll come back to some more questions. Aren't right. You? Okay, yeah, no, the gender pay gap, I mean, it's, it, it is very interesting. And, um, and, and as, you know, as you can see, even from my little graphs, was, you know, that it is quite surprising that you know, some countries that you don't expect have very small gender pay gaps. And, um, um, and I just think, when it, when it, I think it's a good measurement. I think we need lots of measurements. And I think we understand not en at all enough about sort of how these things... Uh, tie into each other and I think I mean as a Swede I am quite fascinated by the fact that you know Sweden is doing very well in some areas but like absolutely no progress in others so there's there doesn't seem to be a connection for example as I was saying between you know the, the type of investments that sort of you know that the Swedish Sweden does through its welfare state and for example you know uh, women in senior management um, um, so and and there's other things like you know maybe the um, this is, some people argue that maybe the Swedish sort of maternity leave is like too long because that might contribute to a gender pay gap and then you have suddenly you have a conflict sort of what's more important long you know and, and how do you do all these sort of policy things and you know I don't have the answers but, uh, uh, but I think lots more sort of comparative studies like looking at different countries and what they do and, and so on and there's not at all enough of that out there so um, and this specific sort of um, proposal that you mentioned, I didn't read the article, but, but I mean, it sounds interesting. Um, then the question about other books. Yes, there's loads, and uh, I, I, we've tried to make sort of my... Um, my book is, is trying to be an invitation to further reading, and then in the end, I'm sort of... There's lots in the bibliography that... Um, and even in the sort of in the footnotes that... Um, that could be interesting. I, I mentioned Nancy Folber and also Julie Nelson, who are two sort of uh, feminist economists who are very, I, I find very, very interesting. So that could be um, a place um, to start. And uh, lastly, the question about about um, finance. So, 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 so again, there was. So your question was basically. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit difficult. I just wanted to reply to. 
Just, just to reply to um, the efficient market hypothesis, yeah. because I mean it was brought up in my class, I critiqued it, um, mm. I was sort of brushed aside, but just sort of your reply to the efficient market hypothesis. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean it, it's sort of, it's pe people don't act that way, market don't, don't act that way, and often they reply is sort of, yeah, but this is the only thing we got, and, and I just think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm a bit shocked that they still, they still teach it like that. It's, I mean, it's, it's um, because I, I don't, you know, there's not that many people out there who, who are defending it, but they, they do teach it, and I think that's just proof of the, the sort of, you know, the, the seductiveness um, um, of it all. And all the people after the financial crisis who have believed in it, they came out and said, oh, this proves, and, and, and so on. So I, I, don't th I think that just sort of speaks to this, you know, the general seductiveness of, of the theories and, and, you know, even more sort of the importance of, of actually, you know, as you say, look at actual transactions, look at sort of, I mean, there's lots, you know, done in sort of, you know, behavioral economics and, um, you know, neuroscience, you know, social psychology, um, real experiments with, with real people. And, and, you know, that must be sort of, you know, you have to sort of point to reality, I think, and keep on doing it. The lady here on the right, and then we'll come to others. Hi, my name is Melissa Kigo. I'm a master's student here at LSC, and thank you so much for your presentation. Um, I was thinking while you were speaking, are there links with maybe measurements within the informal economy and, um, and this feminist economy? Because, I mean, yeah. if you look, you used Ghana, for example, and so when you have countries that don't necessarily have social welfare, you have a lot of informal familial yeah. support and just community support. And so the ways in which that can be measured aligns a lot with the invisible heart. Yeah. So can you make some comments on that, please? There's um, the lady here in the middle in green, and then one here at the front. Hi, my name's Annabelle Blackburn. I'm doing a master's in gender and policy at the LSE. Um, you mentioned the global ch care chain, and I was wondering, so if we're mixing the idea of feminist economics and global economics and mainstream <laughs> economics, um, what's going to be the long-term impacts on global economics of the global care chains? If we're talking about how women trying to be more like the economic man in Western countries are having to offload their caring duties and household duties to women from third world countries for that to happen, this also creates then a labor drain in the countries where these women are coming from, where they could be working in the industries there, helping develop the countries. Um, and eventually this does mean that I think the hierarchies between countries and between economies are uh, worsened or, or perhaps fixed um, because those industries aren't given as much labor force for them to be able to develop and compete with bigger countries. So I'm just wondering if you could maybe comment on the future of the global care chain, what impact this is going to have on uh, world economics, and, yeah, your thoughts on it, basically. Sure. Thanks. Okay, that was one here at the front, second row. That's Bruce Regal. I'm an ex-banker. Uh, I think, and this goes to one of the questions that the gentleman at the very back at the beginning spoke to, I think you're confusing a little bit theorists and empiricists, or even philosophers. I mean, there, I went to the University of Chicago, which isn't the same thing as the Chicago School, by the way. Uh, and 
was taught by some of the professors that you talked about, and they were very value-free people. They didn't talk about theories. They spent a lot of time testing hypotheses, empirically testing things, like uh, the questions of discrimination, etc., and some of the results are unpalatable to people and, and need explanation, and we should look to that. And I think you're jumping a bit to, you know, the correlation proves causation. And I'll start with the point about Eugene Fama. Uh, he, you, you jokingly at the beginning said he dismissed you because you were a woman. Eugene Fama was difficult and dismissive of everybody, <laughs> women and men, from what I could see, young and old. So I think that's an example. I mean, that says something else about the man, maybe, that we should be thinking about. But I, I think this attack that he had a certain philosophy of view of the world isn't correct. Thank you. Uh, right. Um, yes, the informal economy um, and feminist economics. Yes, absolutely. Lots of connections. Um, it's one of the areas where I think it's, this perspective is very important and where people are, you know, have been doing these, these type of measurements and these measurements have been important for a very long, uh, very long time. And, and there's lots of, lots of progress been done and, and I find lots of that work been very, very interesting. So, so you know, I completely, you know, agree with you. Um, the global care, care chain, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if, if it's, you know, that's one sort of analysis of it that you sort of presented there. I mean, I don't know if it's that simple. I mean, you have the other perspective as well. It's sort of these, these women that come here, come to the West, or not just to the West. It's, you know, it's, these chains are quite complicated, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, um, they, they often support, you know, their whole family by the money. They, you know, they, they earn more than, you know, than all the men, in the many men back home, or most men back home. And that, in, in turn, can give them power within their family back home. Um, the money they send back, you know, uh, is very important for these economies. And, you know, I don't think, I, I don't really, I'm not really, I don't really have a, you know, this is my opinion about it. Um, it's, I think it's a very, very interesting sort of part of the global economy and as I was saying I think it should be discussed when we talk about migration and and all of all of these things um, and but I think it's, it's more complex I would say than than sort of your uh, characteristics of it and lastly I you know I don't know who Eugene Farm I was was rude to uh, and the Chicago school again I mean what I was presenting and making fun of a little bit were their theories about discrimination and I you know strongly disagree with this idea that you know if it's there it must be rational, let's find why it's rational. It's not the approach, you know, and I think, especially when it comes to, um, to women and, um, and, and these, these sort of issues, because women don't really fit into these models, I think it becomes very, very obvious uh, why we need a different perspective. Uh, but, you know, um, I'm sure we have different opinions about that. So, um, and, uh, and again, I am very grateful to Gary Becker for looking at women's work. So I said it again. <laughs> The lady here at the front, there, and then right at the back there. Hi, thanks for your presentation. I'm Giselle Corey from the Institute of Public Policy Research. Um, I've done a lot of work on childcare, um, and it seems the age-old stumbling block in the UK is that um, the public um, and therefore the political leaders of the day 
don't see it as a particularly good investment, despite the fact that no one bats an eyelid um, at a fully funded state education system. Um, but it just seems under five, no. Um, so we have very big arguments about very small <laughs> sums of money um, when we want to increase the amount of childcare available. Obviously, the picture is slightly different in Sweden and a lot of Scandinavia, and we often turn to those countries. Um, but the, the discussion in a lot of feminist economics is, you know, it, do, it does come down to care. Um, you showed the, the graph through under £50 billion unpaid um, childcare. That, that's a really, really big amount of money, and uh, any government would be crazy if they were to acknowledge it. Um, so my question to you is, what do we do now in terms of practical steps to mm. make some of this happen? Well, no, I think... Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. I was just sorry. There was a lady here in the brown jacket. Hi, my name is Carrie Coombs. Fantastic, thank you. And I really loved your resource, product, economic man. There's your choice, young woman. Um, I'd really love, on the back of what's just been said, I'd really love your view about what else? What, what in the 21st century can my sons look to marry? Not free resource, not a product, and certainly not economic man. Thank you. And there was right at the back there. Hi, good evening. My name is Diaris Alexander, and I am visiting London from Emory Goizueta during my spring break. And um, I recently, as in two days ago, came from South Africa and um, have been spending some time just kind of reflecting on what we can do as cultivating new leaders. So I'm wondering what your perspective is on what leaders can do outside of just politics, but also within youth development and education and recruiting to create a new, evolved, or more inclusive generation of leaders. Right. Um, first question on, on childcare. Um, I, I suppose one has to argue from the sort of, you know, how to, how to make this rational and how to make this sort of, make policymakers understand why, you know, the importance of this. And, you know, of course, one perspective is the fact that if you invest in childcare along the line, you will get the money back because it will sort of free up many women to work. Uh, for pay, um, and they will pay tax, and then hopefully your childcare investment will eventually pay for itself. Um, that is the case um, almost in, in, in the Scandinavian countries. Of course, that takes time before you get to that. Um, Another perspective is, is uh, you know, what's coming out from sort of, you know, neuroscience and all these sort of scientists, sciences is, um, you know, the importance of uh, investing in the underforce, you know, um, you know, the importance of the brain development and, you know, education, you know, during those, during those is that me? <laughs> during those early years and how sort of it's much more, uh, there's even some Chicago School economists talking about this in, in a very interesting way about how it is much more rational to, to, to do the investment then than trying to sort of make up for what children lose during these formative years later in, in the education system. That will cost more money. Um, and so I think, you know, when we're talking about sort of convincing policymakers, these, these type of arguments... Um, uh, might might work, and then and then I just think it's you know it's just 
is just keep on talking about it. And I also think there's this a moral, this moral aspect of it as well, which is that we all talk about, you know, our children as the most precious, you know, thing we have. And you know, um, it says something about us that we sort of, you know, the people that look after them are, you know, often have very bad conditions and low wages. And you know, it's not, you know, I, I don't like it when sort of politicians talk about family values and then they don't sort of help families, so they don't sort of uh, value the people that look after our children. I, I think that's hypocritical. And um, so I think it's one is the sort of, you know, the cost argument and the other is um, the, the um, moral argument. And number two is, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and um, that's an interesting perspective with your son, <laughs> who he can, he can marry. And um, yeah, it's... Uh, depressing but thank you for your comment um, <laughs> um, um, really um, third question about about leadership um, well I think it's sort of what a lot of that is sort of I think is going on um, you know the the idea what is a leader what is you know again economic man the sort of masculine I, ideal it's it's challenging this and but another thing that I think you know what youth organizations can do and you know other areas of, of society is sort of you know we need to I think we need to make economics more accessible I think many people are scared of economics and the jargon and the terminology and it actually isn't as complicated as we often make it into and I think you know, teaching people and having these discussions uh, in a much sort of, I mean, you can't just leave economics to the economist. It has to be, it's, it, it has to be discussed in wider circles. And I think that's something that other, you know, parts of society and organisations can do. Okay. We... The gentleman here on the right, and then somewhere here at the back, and then right at the end there. My name's Paul Hudson. I'm a retired university teacher, but I'm also on a zero-hours contract, unremunerated. I should add, it is for my six-year-old granddaughter. <laughs> I get some psychic benefits because she makes me laugh and uh, stimulates my brain. Um, thank you very much for your talk. I didn't find it, and it's very entertainingly delivered and uh, largely persuasive, but there's one... Um, question which I'm wondering whether it might partially undermine your thesis. You hear the saying, and it's not meant flippantly, that behind most successful men there are very intelligent or successful women. So is it that the successful economic man is successful by virtue, in fact, of the woman behind him, whether it's his wife or mistress or something else like that, is actually learning to think like a rational economic man and giving him the advice. I would very much appreciate your comment. I know the question might sound humorous, but it does have a serious point. There was someone here at the, at the back here, there, yes. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Ollie. I'm a primary school teacher. And I have to say, I'm a member of the Green Party as well. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, no, I, I really, really uh, welcome your analysis um, on the, the whole construct of, of the economic uh, man. Um, it's always troubled me, the, the, the conflict between um, the sentiments, the theory of moral sentiments and the idea of the, yeah. the economic man in, in Smith. So it's very, very interesting um, to hear about the... Uh, to hear your perspective. Um, Obviously, from a green perspective, I'm interested in the un unlimited appetites that you talked about in the of the of the economic man. 
and that seems to me that is still a, a pillar of our economic system. And yourself, you know, saying you are a, a fan of economics in general, I was wondering how you could square that when we obviously have yeah. the IPCC looking at climate change, um, forest degradations, extinctions of species, etc., and how that our economic model kind of can can be justified in that situation. Um, and so I was wondering if you could maybe address that with the idea of the invisible heart as possibly uh, as a solution to, to those issues. Thank you. See a lady at the back, the black top. Uh, hi, my name is Twisha, and I'm a student of economics. Thank you for your talk. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, fe feminist economics look, looks at the invisible heart, which is kind of ignored by the standard economics. Uh, I want to know uh, what has what has feminist economics, what it has for men. And uh, because I believe it does, and uh, I just want to know, feminist economics associated, feminism is associated with women's empowerment. But I think I want to know what your opinion on, on how it will benefit the economic man uh, by creating a more equitable economy. Thank you. Okay, yeah, first question, so women behind, uh, behind, behind men. Well, I mean, that is... Uh, we don't know that much about, you know, Adam Smith's mother, for example. Maybe, you know, maybe some of these ideas come from her. We pro probably not, but but I mean that is. Um hopefully something that doesn't go on that much anymore because it's, you know, it's quite depressing that women, you know, the choice for women is to sort of choose a man and sort of stand behind him and whisper in his ear. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, Gloria Steinem used to say in the 70s, right, that we went in the feminist movement that we're starting to become the, the men we want, we used to want to marry. And, you know, that was, you know, that was progress. So, so I hope that that doesn't go on much, much anymore. But of course, I, I couldn't know. And the second question about growth is, you know, of course, that is a big, you know, um, discussion. And um, and my my point there was more to sort of because I truly don't believe that this perspective sort of necessarily dictates a certain kind of politics. Um, I'm, you know, I would, for example. I'm very much in favour of you know measuring growth in different ways, which you know more and more people are. Um, and, you know, as we know, GDP was a measurement that was very good at measuring war activity, and it's not as good as measuring the things that we today, you know, wanted to measure. And, and I would say that, you know, when we start to measure other things and look at sort of, you know, what's progress and, and growth and, and we get sort of more competing measurements, then sort of, you know, actually these sort of, some of these problems that you point to will sort of become less problems. But, uh, but I mean, I'm also familiar with, with the green perspective and the sort of, you know, the anti-growth perspective and and, you know, and I think that's an, it's an interesting, interesting debate. Um, what's in it for men? Great question from the back. Um, well, um, well, I don't think you know you're happy when you're trying to be economic man. I, um, you know, just um, um, take a trip down the city of London. Uh, no, I, um, I think I think these sort of this sort of you know trying to you know be this Christian Grey or you know acting like this and having to sort of you know detach yourself from all these things or at least having this sort of ideal of I mean that is it's it's very painful, and I think this this sort of model and, and this uh, is is seductive in the way that of course if we were rational and perfect in this way. Then, um, then life would be very easy if you were an economic man. But also, you know, it strips him and sort of from everything that makes life, you know, meaningful and um, um, and all the sort of you know the messy mess and messiness. And I just think I think a lot of 
in my perspective, sort of, you know, what we call patriarchy has is, has a lot to do with that we are we are afraid of, you know, the full extent of our own humanity that we have all these, you know, you know, we have female characteristics and male, and we're we're, we're dependent, we're independent, we're we're strong, we're weak, we're we're all these things in different phases of our life, and that is quite scary. And we, I think, we often sort of divide it into sort of this is male and this is female, and because it's sort of easier to deal with. And I think feminism in, in whatever you know area, if it's you know economics, it's it's about sort of it's about you know liberating us and you know accepting you know the the full extent of our humanity, which includes you know that we are vulnerable. And, and all these things that, you know, patriarchy and men are sort of taught to sort of, you know, ignore to, to you know, with, with deadly consequences um, um, in, you know, for them. And um, so I think this is in uh, this. And of course, men are interested in meaningful relationships with their children and they're interested in, you know, you know, not having to, you know, work and be economic man all the time. So, so I think definitely it, it will benefit everyone. Thank you. Last set of questions. So, um, the lady here with the scarf. Um... Um, I'm Petra from LSC. I'm also from Slovenia, which was the country, uh, the country on your oh, chart. Oh, I want to ask you yes. questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the smallest gender pay gap. And you mentioned Poland right next to it, still doing worse than us. Um, and you said um, that you find it rather surprising. But if we look at all the countries on the right side of your chart, we see that many of them are from Central and Eastern Europe, yeah, yeah, I know. from the yeah. former communist rule. And so I wonder if there's a clear connection. And if you think that communism, if you ever played with the idea that we could look for a better narrative uh, to improve gender equality in the ideas of communism and socialism. Mm-hmm. Question here from the gentleman. Thank you. Um, my name is Byron. Um, I guess one of the questions I've got is that, um, you know, in some households, um, the finances of the household are managed by the wife, or, you know, and in some households, the finances are managed by the husband. And I was just curious as to whether or not in households where the finances are managed by women, is there a different approach to the way in which the money is spent? Mm -hmm. Is there a much stronger sense of the heart coming through Mm -hmm. as opposed to the rational man? Yeah. There's a lady right at the back there. I'm a student from University of Westminster. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my own interpretation is that you're accusing that both men and women are being object, uh, objectified in a way that only their contributions to the number of time on the labor power are regarded as something uh, that is important to the development of a society. But isn't it uh, objectification <clears throat> is the fundamental logic of capitalism? Uh, does it mean that you're actually criticizing the modern capitalism or are you criticizing the Western modernity created mainly by male? Thank you. Right. Um, first question, uh, Slovenia, Central Europe. Um, um, I think it's, it is interesting. Uh, I don't know, I mean, this is one of the things I've been sort of thinking about a lot and I'm sort of where are the studies I want to see I want to see the research I want to you know so go out and do research on this please um, because I am very interested in it um, um 
And you also think like, you know, you see also Russia leading the world in sort of women in senior management. And when I was at the uh, St. Petersburg School, St. Petersburg Institute of um, Economics, it was the only economic institution I've ever been to where sort of all the professors were women. Um, and I don't know why that is. I mean, in Russia, they have a separate problem with, you know, lack of men and men dying very young. And that could have something to do with it. Um, so I don't know what it is with, with Central Europe. And, uh, but again, I mean, gender pay gap is not everything. It's also female labor force particip- participation uh, and, and other things. But I th- just think these things show that um, it's not, you know, it's not as we think it is, especially not in Sweden. Um, so please go out and do research on this. Um, women manage money. I mean, there, are, there is interesting... Um, studies on this, especially in sort of developing economies, developing economics, um, about that when you give you know women the money, they will spend it on the children, which is a lot better for for growth, um, and then what men will often spend the money on. Um, so, and this has become you know an important perspective there. So, so absolutely. And I would also like to manage that mention that Adam Smith didn't manage his own money; it was a cousin that did that, uh, which was common in those days. But, but but anyway, um, so if I'm criticizing capitalism, everyone's criticizing capitalism, I think, right at the moment. And um, it's, um, I, I think, you know, as I said, I don't think this perspective dictates a certain kind of, of politics. Um, I do think, however, that if you take this perspective seriously, we end up with a different world. But it's still going to be a world where we have, you know, different opinions about the size of the welfare state and, you know, how to solve this and about capitalism. So, um, but I mean, I, uh, so I, yes, I, I think I think I am in, in some sense. Uh, but it's more about economics, really. Yeah. I just want to add one um, practical um, anecdote um, from today, coming back to your point about that some some men may not want to work with women. I was talking to a chairman who runs a FTSE 250 company, and I asked him why he'd given a certain piece of business to a certain search firm. And he said the reason was because they actually understood what he wanted, and they specifically came with an all-female um, team, and whereas the other search firm hadn't understood what he was after and um, had come with a all-male team. So anyway, I just thought, um, I think, thankfully, uh, the days have changed um, where people don't want to work with females. Um, I've seen it a lot in banking as well, that um, there are certain industries, um, whether it's consumer, fashion, others, where even technology, actually, where if you'd pitch for an IPO, you will not get the deal if you come with an all-male team. So I think there's some light at the end of the horizon. Good. So on that happy note, um, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's been a great pleasure to have the opportunity for both me and I hope for all of you to listen to Catherine Nassau. Thank you very much for coming. We're most grateful you could find time to be with us today. Catherine will be signing copies of her book on the stage and you can... Purchase the book outside of the theatre and let us just thank Catherine for her lecture and for very much. Thank you.